0: The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Setting New Expectations in Multiple Myeloma, Guidance on BCMA, CAR-T, and Antibody Options to Enhance Patient Care. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash mkv860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available.
1: I'm Sagar Lonial from Emory, Atlanta, and I'm joined by my colleague, Dr. Krina Patel, the newly married Dr. Krina Patel, by the way. <laughs> She's got the ring and the hands to prove it. Uh, and we're gonna spend the next hour or so talking about setting new expectations in myeloma, guidance on BCMA CAR T and antibody options to enhance patient care. So where are we in 2023 when it comes to managing patients with relapsed and refractory myeloma. This is a nice summary curve that really establishes the difference that new therapies have made to outcomes for patients in the last 50 years almost. And what you can see is a subsequent improvement in uh, disease-specific survival based on decades in which this was, uh, in which this was done. Uh, And what we have shown at our group, and Karina was waiting for me to say this in the RVD1000 series, is that the median survival is now over 10 years for the average myeloma patient. And I saw a new patient on Tuesday and said, not only is it over 10 years, but this data is 10 years old. So it's likely even better than it was. The challenges are, however, that many of our really good active drugs are getting moved earlier and earlier, so when patients develop drug resistance, the options are a little bit more limited. And this really, I think, unfortunately is the reality of many of us who see a lot of myeloma patients. We have a lot of people that are doing really well for a long time, but when they stop being sensitive to the big three classes of drugs, CD38, proteasome inhibitors, and IMIDS, we really are in a bit of a quandary. And this really demonstrates some of that limited progression-free and overall survival for patients with triple-class refractory or pentaclass refractory multiple myeloma. And the options in that context really are quite limited. And that's really going to be the focus of what we're going to spend the next uh, 50 minutes talking about. So what agents do we have available in that context? Well, we had, we have and then had belantumab-mafidotin, which was the first BCMA-directed antibody drug conjugate, Idacel, cell, Teclistamab, and most recently l And then uh, about uh, uh, around the same time, we also have telketamab. And you're going to see some data on each of these novel approaches for managing patients with triple-class refractory disease. And as we do in myeloma, when it works late, we bring it earlier to see whether we can ultimately get to that cure plateau, which is what I think we all really want to see. We want to get patients not just long, deep, continuous therapy remissions, but ultimately get to curative therapy where we can stop treatment and let patients get back to their normal, everyday life. So our goals for today really are to improve your knowledge on the mechanisms of action and clinical evidence supporting BCMA-directed therapy, enhance your ability to develop sort of a personalized treatment approach, and finally, equip you with the skills to manage safety, Therapy delivery and patient education considerations in the context of BCMA directed therapy. And with that, I will th- turn things over to my colleague, Dr. Patel.
2: Perfect. Thank you everybody for being here. Um, so I'll start the next 15 minutes just talking about the breaking the glass ceiling of conventional care with BCMA CAR T, one of my favorite topics. Um, And we're starting with a case and kind of discussing what we would do uh, differently because, again, myeloma doctors have so many options, which is amazing. We might do completely opposite things for the same patient. So um, this is David, who is 70 years old, PSF1, um, had len bortezomib dex induction, had an auto transplant, and then unfortunately progressed after two and a half years of lung maintenance, which is a little bit early. Um, at relapse, we repeated set of genetics and he does have high risk with 1Q amplification. So Sagar, you see this patient come in, um, would you consider CAR-T? I would, because I love CAR-T for everyone. I would do it at diagnosis if I could, um, but or, or other standard of care regimens.
1: Yeah, you know, I think this is a really good question and in many ways is addressed by uh, some of the data that you're gonna touch on in terms of the use of CARs in earlier lines of therapy. I think as of, September in 2023. Uh, I think that a DARA-based approach would likely be the standard. Uh, but I think the other consideration is that this, with a short duration of remission, only 2.5 years after initial diagnosis, this patient meets the definition of functional high risk. And so we need to think about how we would approach that.
2: Agreed. If, if they had one Q at diagnosis, would you have done maintenance or anything else differently?
1: Isolated one Q, I'm not so sure. Got but but yeah. certainly with one Q plus something else, yes.
2: Like ultra high risk. Yeah, I agree. Um, and I, I do see these patients quite often where they relapse so early, and we just see the one Q. Um, and then DPD or DVD. What would you use, let's say, um, until you can get a, even if you could get a CAR T, or if you decided a standard of care? What are your sort of CD thirty eight regimens?
1: Yeah. So in a patient with a short duration of remission. Less than three years is our cutoff for dara cardex versus DPD. Agreed. If they've had more than three years of PFS, then we would use DPD in
2: that. Yeah. Of. No, perfect. And I think the only difference was during COVID where patients couldn't come in or if they live far, then DPD um, is sort of the, the main thing.
1: So what is your just sort of experience with CAR in a high-risk patient early?
2: So much better than my experience in CAR a standard of care, fifth line, right? So I, I think for my patients that have, were fortunate enough to get on the trials, when you have high risk at diagnosis or in, in second line, to get to fifth line with your attrition curves, right, um, they usually don't make it. Or by the time they make it, I can't keep their disease controlled to wait for eight weeks, you know, four to eight weeks to make the cells and then get their um, disease better controlled. Um, And I think some of the data will show that high-risk patients, we get the response rates. Maybe the PFS is still shorter, but it's still better now than it would have been down the road. Yeah. Okay. Great question. Um, So again, do you think out of all the high-risk features, you know, the therapies we have for high-risk patients, do you think CAR-T is any different than other standard of care options or even other novel agents that are available?
1: Well, I, you know, I, I think um, I think we're going to see some data in the next few moments where for patients with extramedullary disease, you may get responses with cars or even biospecifics, those tend to be really challenging patients in general. Um, uh, but can I say that they're better than what we traditionally think of? I, I don't know that I have enough data to make that statement.
2: Yeah, I think we'll have some data soon coming, hopefully coming out at ash um, that Doing CAR T earlier for high risk patients tends to increase their overall survival um, again, doing it later versus earlier, um, and I do think that the whole goal is getting the cells for any patient that 's going to CAR T and, and our high risk patients, hopefully that we 're actually changing their outcomes long term by getting it up front but again don 't have I have anecdotal data for now, and then hopefully some published data down the road. Um, And then in terms of referral, I know, you know, most CAR-T isn't done everywhere. It's only at certain centers and there's limitations. Um, When do you like to see those patients come in?
1: Sooner is better than later.
2: (laughs) And do you usually work with community doctors in terms of bridging and maybe what pre-apheresis therapy they should yeah. have.
1: And, and I think yeah. that's the advantage of referral earlier is the later you wait, the more likely that patient is to be a train wreck, and so you've gotta do things that sometimes only we can do, uh, whereas if it's earlier, you may be able to manage them in the community while you're trying exactly. to get the insurance approvals and the apheresis set up.
2: Yeah, I agree. I think getting them to the cells is much more likely to happen. And then, how do you explain, I love the way you explain it actually, CRS and neurotoxicity to your patients. <laughs>
1: Well, um, you know, I think in general, the fear is what CD19 CAR T cells do. Everybody says, oh my gosh, CD19 has terrible CRS and terrible neurotox. The way I think about it is that CAR T cells in myeloma, BCMA, are on average one grade lower than what you see with CD19. And when you get to bi-specifics, I think it's one grade lower than that. Um, And so I think that helps put some of the fear that a lot of patients carry into context.
2: Yeah, completely agree. And I I basically tell them fevers, maybe a little bit of oxygen they might need or fluids, but that's usually grade one, two, and that's all we see. Um, And then neurotox, again, some confusion, maybe handwriting issues, but really we turn it around pretty quickly. Perfect. So take-homes for just that patient uh, workshop. The current standard of care is still CD38 base triplets. Um, We do not have CAR-T yet approved, so I wanted to make sure that was clear. Um, But there is lots of evidence that I'll go over that shows that use use of BCMA CAR-T, including patients who are LEN refractory, um, is coming up. Um, Hopefully soon we'll have approvals. Uh, Early relapse, especially in higher-risk patients, is probably useful to get them to a novel therapy. And then neurotoxin and um, CRS are, in general, much less severe than CD19 CARs, but probably a little bit more involved than our bispecifics. All right, so these are the two approved CAR Ts right now, Idacel and Siltacel. Major difference is that um, Idacel has one anti-BCMA SFV, and uh, Siltacel has two different binding domains, but they both use 401BB as their um, signaling domain. Okay. So again, NCCN, we have two products up there, and I will say the biggest issue is that it's, you have to have at least four prior lines of therapy. So for now, the earlier you can get those patients to us, we can get them ready to go when they are. So I like to see them at third line, um, potentially right at fourth line, so we can get the approvals and ready to go. Um, and again, we have Cartitude One for Siltacel and, and Karma, 3 for I, or Karma for cell. Um, and there is a um, long-term follow-up for Cartitude One being presented Friday afternoon as well. So then we have, um, up front, a little bit earlier line therapy in our first randomized studies for CAR-T for myeloma. So CAR-2-4 was Siltz's cell versus standard of care DPD or VPD. And again, you see the you know hazard ratio of 0.26. I don't know where else I've seen this um, for myeloma before. And PFS not reached versus 11.8 months, which is what we, we expect. Um, These patients, most of them were LEN refractory, so got it in second line, some were in third line, but majority of patients had not had darA or CD38 before. Um, They were able to use bridging therapy like DPD or PVD, so drugs they hadn't seen, which helps bring that myeloma down before going to CAR T, which is always a good thing, um, and decreases your risk of neurotoxicity um, that's delayed. And then again, the hazard, you know, the forest plot showing that in different patients who have high risk, so um, if you have any one high risk feature, still likely to do better with cell. Then you have ultra high risk, two features and better to do with um, um, cell. And then also your refractory status, much better um, with the uh, cell. Karma 3 was also presented recently, and again, the first um, randomized study, these are patients who are a little bit one line later than the last study, and these patients were triple class exposed um, and, and at least one or IMID refractory. Again, you know, 11, 13.3 months versus 4.4 months. So that um, PFS for the standard of care is much, much lower than the last study um, because these patients are, are a little bit higher risk compared to um, earlier line. And then we have a couple of slides just on real world data. So we talk about trial data and it's great, but our real world patients are a little bit different. um, the US uh, Cell Therapy Myeloma Consortium um, has about 15 groups now putting all our data together. And the CARMA criteria, um, patients who met CARMA-1 criteria versus not, about 75% of patients would have not been eligible for CARMA for our standard of care cell patients. And again, PFS was still pretty comparable, um, maybe a little bit lower, and same thing with survival is actually even um, more similar um, with, with patients who met uh, CARMA-1 criteria versus not. But response, overall response rates was still about 85%, and median PFS was about eight to nine months for our standard of care patients. And then um, more recently at ASCO, we also presented our cell data for real world. And again, 12-month PFS is about 67%. Uh, percent. Overall response rate was in the um, 89% for all the patients, and 57, again, were, would have been ineligible for cartitude. So it really does show that if we have access to it, it patients do really, really well. Um, and then just coming back to the trials and looking at toxicity again, as Sagar said, you know, we see CRS, but it's mostly grade one, two, very little grade three. Um, there is this delayed neurotoxicity that a lot of my lymphoma doctors sometimes are like, what is this, you know, facial palsy, things like that. There are ways to mitigate it by giving better bridging, um, trying to get patients earlier where their myeloma is not exploding. Um, if they have bad CRS, grade three, four, or ICANS, treating it really aggressively where that risk of ne- delayed neurotoxicity with sulfosol. And even Idosol does decrease. Um, and um, patients have to have done much, much better with that. All right, so coming to the key principles for delivery of CAR T, really that referral, you know, getting those patients there at least one line earlier, so right now, getting them fourth line to the, the centers that have it. Um, if it gets approved in second, third line, getting them even sooner to us. Um, And our our goal really is to work with you. Uh, These patients take a lot of care and our centers can't do it all. And we really try to work with all our community doctors to make sure they're getting the appropriate pre-apheresis therapy so that they don't have bad T-cells and manufacturing fails, but also for uh, bridging, et cetera. So we try not to use dexamethasone or systemic uh, corticosteroids right before cell infusion um, and definitely alkylators right before collection of T-cells. We do use it for bridging quite a bit, but, but not before apheresis. Um, bridging is really important, and, and I think you'll we'll have more and more data showing that, um, that patients who respond to bridging do much, much better in terms of toxicity and um, efficacy um, compared to those patients who are blowing through bridging. And then we do have lots of infection prevention, and there's a paper that just came out um, uh, from Mohan et al. That, that is really good for myeloma-specific um, T-cell therapies, but there's a few more that are going to come out soon from CITSI and and other groups too.
1: All right, well, let's switch gears a little bit and talk about some more, uh, and I'm saying this mostly just to get uh, Karina's, get her uh, agitated, some more practical options. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> meaning some sort of off-the-shelf, easily available options for the management of patients with relapsed and refractory myeloma. So we're gonna start with another patient. This is Jane, who presents with rapidly progressive myeloma, 76-year-old female, PSF1 at presentation with standard risk myeloma, got DRVD and then a transplant, Got len maintenance, then progressed and got ELO at a median duration, had a duration of response of about five months. Then got KD. Best response was a PR with a DOR of about uh, three and a half months. And then got ISA added to the KD, uh, and again about two months of additional DOR. Uh, was subsequently referred uh, uh, to CAR-T, but has not yet been planned as yet. Uh, so, the declining per, uh, performance status really I think represents a real world situation where many of us, as we watch patients get treatment after treatment, start to fall apart just a little bit and so I think the real question is, given triple class refractory, what would you think about in terms of mechanism of action as you as you think about uh, treating these kinds of patients oh, dr patel sorry oh that 's okay
2: <laughs> so I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I obviously, she's had everything already. Um, I'm a little the KD and adding ISA later versus doing a triplet we can talk about. But um, anything off the shelf as a BCMA, I, I think that's a um, slam dunk. Um, and now that we have available bispecific antibodies, um, if I had the ADC, I'd actually use that too, being older and a little bit more frail maybe. Right, right.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the real question is, if somebody needs a response quickly, and it sounds like this patient needs exactly. a response, you're going to hope that the PS is going to improve. Uh, and so can you support them through something like a bispecific? And I think in many cases, the answer is yes. Yes.
2: I I, I agree. I think at the beginning I was a little worried about having to have patients that have exploding disease going in, but we've had great responses where, again, CRS is one-fold lower than CAR T for myeloma um, and and really easy to treat um, or even prophylax against maybe that some centers are doing.
1: Right. Right. So, again, presuming a bispecific is used, how do you approach sort of infection prevention, step-up dosing with uh, TEC and ELRA?
2: Yeah, so I think these are great questions um, that once we have it standard of care, we all sort of do it a little differently. But uh, again, infection is the biggest, biggest thing I think that you're going to go over a little bit later. But um, with the continued treatment um, using bispecifics, we see patients still get neutropenia, get the hypogamma, and now their T cells are, you know, exhausted. So we're seeing strange infections. Mm-hmm. So for us, we actually check for even CMV, things like that before we start, because Texas, 95% of us have been exposed, Um, and we watch like hepatitis, all these things much more closely. Um, And then we, we, for certain patients, we actually give prophylaxis to, right, like the really frail patients or those who have low CD4 counts, et cetera. Um, We we follow the step-up dosing per the label, Um, but afterwards, my patients who have had a good response, or if they're frail with even a PR. I'll go to every two weeks um, dosing to help them out to make sure I don't cause bad infections. Yeah. Lots of IVIG.
1: Yeah. No, I think that's an important point is the monthly IVIG, yep. even in the context of what you may call a reasonable IgG level, BCMA, specifics and CARS are incredibly immunosuppressive. When we looked at vaccine responses to COVID before or right around the time the first vaccines were available. Um, basically, there was almost no response among anybody getting BCMA-directed by specific or car So, these are people that need some level of passive immunity, even if you think they're, they're doing okay. Yeah. I think the other point to raise is about inpatient versus outpatient administration. Are you guys in or out? We're still inpatient. are in. <laughs> We're yeah. in and switching, actually, this week. Um, and we have data that's about to be submitted using a single dose of prophylactic tosi before dose two that seems to really drop off the impact of CRS uh, and any ICANNs data. So one prophylactic dose about an hour before the dose seems to make it even easier for outpatient administration. So it may mitigate the need for that 24-hour access. I'm not saying it's the answer, but certainly something to think about, and I think many sites are looking at yeah. stuff like that as well. All right, so. Um, uh, I guess this one yeah. you're supposed to ask me.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so what do you think the current status of Bel- yeah, so
1: Belantamab Mephidotin, and we're going to go through some of the data here, I think certainly is a very good drug in certain contexts. There are certain patients certain, we've had who have done quite well, are older, frailer, don't want to go in the hospital, and I think we're going to see the data from DREAM3 that unfortunately led to the withdrawal of the drug, but there are three other trials that are in development and we're waiting for readouts in the next year, and I suspect one of the things that many of those trials have done is change the dose and change the schedule. And uh, those of you who've given Belantivab, Mafa, know know that you can rarely keep people on the every-three-week schedule. Uh, I had a patient that was on for two years, but we dosed her every six weeks. Uh, And it worked actually quite well for her in that context. So I think we're going to see combination regimens that use a BCMA-directed antibody drug conjugate change the dose and frequency so that you don't have to be so dependent on an ophthalmologist or so worried about some of the ocular toxicity?
2: Yeah, I was just gonna add, I have a couple of patients post CAR T where they were the last ones to be able to get it and we did it with POM off label, but they've gotten it twice in a year and they're in complete remissions, right? right? So I I think still a great drug to, to hopefully come back.
1: Yeah, yeah. so I think given that we always need options, it's nice to have additional think- tools in our tool belt, if you will. So I think we've talked about a lot of these. Again, the short hospitalization right now on label, but I think you're going to see a lot of papers and experiences coming out, switching this to outpatient management, using preemptive therapy either with corticosteroids or tocilizumab to try and reduce the severity of CRS. I can, at least in my experience, I can think I've only seen it once, really with a patient. Most of the time it's going to be CRS, and most of the time it's grade one and manageable with a little bit of TOSI as well. The infection prevention is key, and I I completely agree with Dr. Patel. The idea of dose reduction, we're actually treating tech like we treat darA. so every week for eight weeks, and then every other week for four cycles, and then we're going to once a month. Uh, And there is certainly data from some of the majestic trials suggesting by reducing the frequency, the infection rate drops off pretty markedly as well, and the PFS rate looks pretty Similar between okay. them. So I think these are strategies that you need to be aware of. Agreed. Okay, so let's talk about some of the data, the hard data, in terms of updates on the approved agents here. And what you see is sort of the structure of many of these molecules, and the idea that unlike DARA or ELO or rituximab, where the two arms of the Y are the same, uh, where it's CD38, SLAMF7, or CD20. Here, in a bispecific, they're different. So one binds BCMA, uh, or one binds CD3. And that really brings the myeloma cell in close proximity to a T cell. And that that, uh, ultimately activates the T cell and results in uh, in myeloma cell killing. So it is, in many ways, sort of the poor man's uh, CAR T, if you will, because it may do the same thing, just isn't ex vivo engineered and not quite as targeted as a CAR T cell may be as well. Now, what we know about Teclistomat, which has been available for a while now in the U.S., is that the overall response rate in the Majestic-1 trial was in the 60s here. You can see a significant proportion of patients achieved CR. And just like with Dara, you may see that lingering low-level paraprotein, and that's actually the, te- the tech. It's not actually the, uh, the original M-spike. So mass spec may be something that helps us to differentiate that and identify true CRs from low-level antibody like we see in the context of Dara tumor. But I think the really high VGPR or CR rate in the context of penta-refractory patients is really what distinguishes this class of agents. And what you're seeing here are progression-free and overall survival curves, not just for all patients, but patients who do achieve astringent CR. And again, these are five to seven prior lines of therapy. Seeing PFS curves that are well beyond a year uh, certainly is really exciting, and it's, it's rare uh, in, in the context of heavily pretreated patients, which gives us good hope for moving it earlier and earlier. Now, we do know that some of the things that are always bad may still be bad in the context of these new therapies, but they may be less bad. Uh, And what I mean by that is, yes, these are some challenges, particularly extramedullary disease and high tumor burden, but uh, these are patients that do respond. And then the question is, what can you do to maintain that response? What can you do to consolidate that response? We know extramedullary disease is a significant challenge for all of us. When you look at safety issues outside of CRS and ICANs, which are listed here, we do see some cytopenias. And I think that the neutropenia and the thrombocytopenia, from a mechanistic perspective, is likely a consequence of inflammation in the marrow when you're killing myeloma cells. So that low-level CRS is still enough to cause some local inflammatory effect that causes cytopenia. So even though it is targeted to BCMA, you can get neutropenia and thrombocytopenia and anemia, and I think that's just part of of the mechanism of action, if you will. You'll notice here, infections are certainly very significant, and this is why I think we've all harped pretty significantly on the idea of prevention and prophylaxis. There is a paper uh, that several of us are on that just came out in leukemia, I think, yes. that are some guidelines on how to do infection prevention and prophylaxis in many patients getting BCMA specifics. I'd recommend you look at that just to get a sense for, for what to do. Now l Renatamab is the newest kit on the block. It's another BCMA directed by Specific. It is structurally different from Teclistomab. Whether it's functionally different from Teclistomab, we don't know the answer right now. And I think that's something that all of us are looking forward to hopefully being able to tease out. Uh, but again, you can see this was uh, over 100 patients, uh, again, the VGPR or better rate, very, very high with l And when you begin to look at progression-free survival curves, not just for patients in general, but with stringent CR, and this was published just a couple weeks ago in Nature Medicine, what you're seeing again is sort of these unprecedented durations of response, particularly amongst the majority of patients who achieved a stringent CR or a VGPR or better. So certainly very active as well. Now here's the step-up dosing, and I don't know that there's a lot to understand here except you really should do it. If you don't do it, your CRS and ICANS rates are going to be much higher. Uh, I think if you look at differences between the two drugs, you get to a bigger dose faster with l than you do with Teclistomab. Whether that means anything down the road I think is hard to know, but maybe a consideration if you're thinking about a patient who needs a quicker response. Getting to that full dose within three days as opposed to waiting a full week may be something to think about. We don't know whether that really matters. What about belantamab? We talked about this a little bit. Belantamab mafidotin is the antibody drug conjugate that you see here. Again, it works through three mechanisms. It does bring uh, um, uh, chemotherapy into the cell. It also does induce ADCC and ADCP through effector cell function and actually results in immunogenic cell death. And this was the DREAM2 study that led to the FDA approval of belantamab mafidotin with a median DOR of uh, close to 13 months. Uh, and with longer-term follow-up, we're not seeing new adverse events. And in fact, the immunosuppressive infectious complications are actually less with this BCMA directed approach than they are with others that are a little bit more comprehensive. So certainly from a tolerability and a frailty perspective, this is you come in once every three or more weeks, uh, it's relatively easy to give for a patient. And so for the patient that lives far away that doesn't wanna come in quite as often, this may be a really important endpoint. Now the trial that ultimately was not positive that led to the withdrawal of Belamaf, was the DREAM-3 trial. And what you can see is that the PFS was 11 months versus 7 months here, so it was different. The response rate was higher, it was just not statistically significantly higher for both arms. And while it's clearly trending in in the era of improvement, the FDA felt this wasn't significantly positive to allow the drug to stay on after accelerated approval. As I said, this was using the traditional dose and schedule for belamaph I think you're going to see modifications that make it a little bit easier to stay on longer. And the combinations, I think, are going to end up being uh, really uh, bringing this drug back. So, again, here's some of the summary of what we've already said. Ocular adverse events really are supportive in management. Uh, if you've got patients that are still on, you have to do it through a spe- special protocol. I think our last patient just came off of that special protocol. Looks like you've got somebody. I still
2: have somebody. You've still got oh, somebody.
1: All right. So, so they are available, and there are ways to get it uh, for patients going forward.
2: Okay, so now we're gonna go a little bit um, on the next phase of BCMA, sort of the earlier, and then the non-BCMA antibody platforms that are really exciting. So coming back to the patient Dr. Loneal just talked about, um, you know, do you have clinical trials for relapse refractory patients? Yeah. Okay, so if you and I are always gonna say, of course, for clinical trials, this is our plug to say, bring your patients over. We have lots of great new things coming. Um, again, new targets, new other things, uh, mechanism of action that we would love for patients like this to go on to. Again, has had CD38 twice now too, right? And then what other BCMA specific options could be considered? Um, would you give them any? Would you give specific after specific? Any thoughts on that?
1: Um, yeah, I don't have an issue sequencing specifics, um, okay. so that would be one, one potential way to look at it.
2: Yeah. And I think learning different, now that we have a different target, right, would you do something different? So now this patient got a BCMA antibody, duration of response was 12 months, which is much better than the last three regimens this patient had. So again, why we would give it um, instead of waiting. And so now they've had BCMA therapy, do you recommend a different mechanism of action or would you think maybe Telquetimab as GPRC5D, but still being a T-cell engager could still work?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think what we're beginning to learn is that if you're progressing on a BCMA bispecific, the mechanisms of resistance may not be mostly immune in nature. They may be receptor mutations or other changes, and so I would think about switching the target but potentially staying with the bispecific.
2: Yeah, no, I agree, and I think there's some retrospective data from Mount Sinai that shows going one to the other actually works really well. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, for me, changing the antigen probably means much more than, especially for bispecific to bispecific. Perfect. Oh, and then one other thing I was going to ask that I forgot: AEs. So for telequetimab, you know the AEs are very different. Thankfully, infections are a lot less. Um, there's still some, you know, um, infections you have to look out for, but not like the BCMA therapies. Um, any other AEs that you think are, you know, worth discussing with your patients before you start?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I usually do raise the skin, nail, and the GI stuff uh, yeah. because I think those are real and. They're harder to manage without dose reductions and dose modifications, so it's really about giving them a break away from therapy, but those are the issues I bring up.
2: Perfect. Awesome. Okay. So, in terms of the patient take home, um, so multiple BCMA agents are in development, Um, so it's not just TechNAP, but we have Linvo, l of course, Elra just got approved um, less than a month ago. Clinical trials are always an option. Um, and then, you know, we do really discuss lots of different aspects of BCM by specifics. It's not really just like any of our other, you know, off the shelf medications out there. Um, they, they need specific infection prevention and, and follow up. Um, and then, recommendations for our patient if now they've had BCM exposure. We do like to switch targets after BCMA, uh, potentially, um, especially if it's the same mechanism of action. I don't think we have any data to say that even though we have all these BCMA bi-specifics coming out, if you're relapsing on one, we can just do a different one instead, right? Um, no real data for that. Um, Talquetamab is approved uh, for a different mechanism of action and a different antigen, GPRC5D. And then I think current data does show that BCMA antibodies can be active um, after other BCMA therapies, and I would say especially CAR-T. So going over the other um, novel BCMA and um, other mechanism of action bispecifics or other targets. So we have linvaceltamab um, that was presented uh, just at EHA and ASCO. So this is a little different in that the administration's IV. Um, then we have the ABBV383, which is an IgG4 bispecific. Again, IV every three weeks. Um, l which is an IgG1 bispecific antibody for BCMA. Um, and then you can see it's sub-q, but um, again, step-up dosing day 1, 4, 8, and then 1522 of cycle 1. Goes to every two weeks, and then it goes to every four weeks starting cycle 7. Um, And then the newest one, Sevastomab, um, that's still in studies, but it's a different target we haven't talked about yet, FCRH5, also very um, ubiquitously uh, expressed on malignant plasma cells. Um, And this is the full dose IV over a 21-day cycle. Um, There is a step-up dosing for cycle one. And then there's, oh, so that, the one important thing about this is that after 17 cycles, you can actually stop treatment. So it's the only fixed duration, which I will say is very important for our patients um, in terms of quality of life. So something else we're looking at with other BCMA bispecifics as well. So just a little bit about Linvo, uh, BCMA CD3 bispecific antibody, again, targets T cell effector function to cause cytotoxicity just like our other um, bispecifics. But linker, is there a study that was presented? And again, the recommended recommended dose was 200 milligrams. Um, patients were median six prior lines of therapy, 90% um, triple-class refractory, and at six-month follow-up, the response rate for that 200 milligram dose was 71%, and 59% greater than a VGPR. And of the 30% that got stringent CR/CR, of the evaluable patients, more than half were MRD negative at 10 to the minus fifth. And then looking at the two-dose levels, so again, the 200 was picked because medium PFS is not reached yet, um, versus the 50 milligrams was about 7.9 months, which again, is still pretty impressive for six lines of prior therapy. Um, and again, most of the CRS is a little different with this one, um, happens at the priming dose, the five milligrams, then you see it drop at the 25, and at the first full dose, um, less and less over time. So again, um, each week it's actually a less likelihood of getting CRS. And there was no grade four or five. There's actually no grade three or higher CRS either, um, which is, again, a lot of our specifics. So again, this is a step up dosing. Um, it's a little different week one and two versus week three to six. Um, and then, um, so it's cycle one, week three to six, 200 Q week. Um, and then it continues on. Um, and if depending on your response, so after cycle six, if you've had a VGPR or better, they're dropping it to Q4 weeks versus less than VGPR, you continue at the two weeks. So kind of using a um, response um, adapted uh, evaluation. So again, coming to Talquatamab now, just got approved and is on NCCN as in at least four prior lines of therapy. Does not necessarily require prior BCMA, um, so we'll talk about that too. But um, a new target, GPRC5D, again very ubiquitously um, expressed on uh, myeloma cells. And for talquetamab, this was the monumental one study. Two doses were tested, Um, and again, median six previous lines of therapy. So, greater than 71% overall response for all doses, but 0.4 and 0.8 were, were similar in overall response rate. Maybe a little bit more um, deeper response um, in terms of CR, astringent CR, but otherwise are greater or similar. And those who were um, prior uh, uh, T cell, or sorry, um, refractory cohort was 65%. So, still patients um, had great responses despite being triple class refractory. And so coming to the AE, so, you know, Sagar and Dr. Alonio talked about this a little bit. They're different. The GPRC5D is on some endothelial, um, it's expressed on endothelial cells, and so there are taste changes with dyskesia, um, Skin-related, nail-related changes, the taste changes can cause weight loss um, and, and rash. So really, you know, monitoring these symptoms early with your patients to say, okay, let's hold it to see if we can improve it. Um, and, and patients do well. So nothing that's necessarily fatal, and like infections, again, half the risk rate of grade three, four infections at 19.6%. But just different side effects we need to monitor in terms of quality of life. And then the last slide, really now, again, as myeloma doctors do, we like to combine everything. And I think in the end, how are we going to get the functional cure for our patients or more of our patients? It's going to be, how do we use different mechanism of action or novel therapies against different antigens? Um, so now you have BCMA and GPRC5D in the redirect um, study. And this was presented at ASCO and HEA, And again, it was a phase 1B trial of TEC and TALC together. Um, Again, showed safety profiles similar to the both trials, but I mean, amazing response rates, 96% at the phase two dosing, um, 86% for patients with extramedullary disease. So pretty phenomenal for some of our really relapsed refractory, or even our um, high-risk patients, I should say. We are with audience Q&A. All right,
1: we've got five minutes for Q&A here, I think. Uh, And let's see what we have here. Cancel. All right, sequencing of CAR T versus bispecific, I think we've talked about that one. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Is 1Q considered high risk if no other high risk cytogenetics?
2: Yes, I think, I think it, yes. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, we, and it depends on the amplification 1Q and like the number, copies, et cetera. But um, I think more and more data has shown that yes, these patients are, are high risk even on their own. Definitely if they have other 17P, et cetera, Higher. ultra high risk is really bad, but we still consider them high risk. And
1: there will be a new definition of high risk coming from the IMS probably yes. in the next six months or so. And three copies of 1Q is not gonna be considered high risk in their category but they recognize that there may be an in-between, between standard and what they're defining as high risk and it may fall in there. Neurotoxicity, Parkinsonism with uh, BCMA CAR T, treatment and prognosis.
2: Yeah, great question. So we've seen in the real world data that a lot of patients do get facial palsies, um, which aren't necessarily Parkinsonianism. So there we do high dose steroids, sometimes IVIG, and for most patients it resolves or at least decreases. If someone has true, true Parkinsonianism, it is much harder to treat. Um, we do IVIG, plasmapheresis, high dose steroids, et cetera. Um, there have been you know drugs like anti-Parkinsonian drugs that have, tri- have been tried and it doesn't work. So what really the management strategy is prevent it. And that we know we can do by going in with less myeloma, better bridging. And if someone has high grade CRS or ICANS, really treating it with high dose steroids, bringing it down. And that way it prevents this from happening.
1: Okay, so uh, what premed is advised to prevent facial palsy? Yeah, I, I want to know we... the answer to this, too. <laughs>
2: <laughs> if we knew who was going to get it, it would be great. But I, I just recently had a patient who was in VGPR, had grade one CRS, was outpatient for cell to cell the whole time, and then got you know facial palsy. So it's hard to say who should get pre- prevention. But again, steroids worked for him to bring it down after. So I don't think you can prophylax.
1: All right. Is it still effective to give BCMA CAR T after progression relapsed after BCMA bispecific? Maybe you can do the quick summary of the Bayless paper.
2: (laughs) I think we have a couple of papers. you know, cohort two C for cell to cell cartitude show that the response rate for patients who had prior by specific or prior BCMA to CAR was about sixty percent. So remember, from ninety-eight percent to sixty percent, and the PFS was around six to eight months. So from thirty-three months to, to much lower, still great, um, might be the best option, but but much much lower if you go by specific the other way. And our eye to cell paper that just came out kind of shows the same thing. The prior B bis- by specifics, PFS is much lower. Um, I think. If you do ELRA, for instance, post-CAR, your response is down by 10%. Your PFS is maybe a couple months, but still much better than the other way around.
1: Yeah. Here's a question about gamma secretase inhibitors. I'll start, and you can you can weigh in on this. So I think it's a really interesting mechanism. I don't know that it makes an existing BCMA-directed therapy better at the outset. The Hutch actually did GSI before giving a CAR-T their response rates were pretty good. I don't know what their PFS is. That, that paper's in, uh, in in submission, I think. But I think about using it after you've given a car or a buy specific for a month or so. And we know that those remaining myeloma cells may be BCMA low. And you may be able to drive expression up and then maintain efficacy or improve efficacy using it later. So I think the jury's out on when to use a GSI. Uh, but I think clearly it, it does upregulate the, the, the expression. Whether it makes a difference in outcomes, I think, is, is hard to know. Uh, combo of tech and talc achieves a CR rate of about 40%, which is close to single agent tech when would you consider using this combo as opposed to single agents?
2: Uh, well, the combo remember. is actually much higher. It's o- the cr line? Oh, the cr sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, again, I think the question of long-term PFS, right? I, I agree, for most patients, I think the deeper the response, the longer response you're going to have. But with immune therapy, I think it could be different, again, earlier line. Um, so I need to see that PFS. but. correct. If the PFS is similar, I don't know I would give patients extra toxicity without any benefit.
1: And and to me, I think the perfect partners for the biospecifics, quite honestly, are the IMIDs. Because we know that T cell function and T cell health is an important part of the efficacy of these drugs. And many ways, even the new IMIDs, like ibertamide and mesignamide, are far more potent at turning sleeping T cells to awake T cells. Um, And that is the technical term for those. Um, And so, in that context, may be really helpful uh, as a partner. So I think that's it. Thank you again to my colleague and partner here, Dr. Patel, and thank you for joining us this afternoon.
0: This activity is provided by Medical Learning Institute Incorporated. This activity is developed with our educational partner, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerviewcom forward slash mkv860. This activity is supported by independent medical educational grants from GlaxoSmithKline, Janssen Biotech Incorporated, administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC, and Regeneron Pharmaceuticals Incorporated.